You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 29. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in Sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's episode features Dr. Lulu Guagua, CEO of Loreco Investments, a Black-owned investment firm in South Africa. You can connect with Dr. Lulu at luluguagua.co.ca. Born in a rural village in KwaZulu-Natal, Dr. Lulu came from a large family which included 25 family members. Growing up, she wanted to be a doctor, but there was no math teacher in her village, which halted her future medical career. For her undergrad, she studied at University of Fort Hare, a historically important Black university. Encouraged by a professor, Dr. Lulu completed her master's in urban planning at the University of Natal, a predominantly white higher education institution, where she was one of a handful of Black students. She qualified as the first Black town and regional planner, a remarkable achievement in apartheid South Africa. In the late 1980s, Dr. Lulu left for London for further graduate studies. She graduated from the London School of Economics with a master's in social policy and planning and the University College London with a PhD. And with the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994, South Africa's apartheid regime was no more. Dr. Lulu joined the government as a director in the National Department of Public Works, and for the next 10 years, she worked in development, consulting, and research, notably for the World Bank. In the early 2000s, Dr. Lulu parlayed her diverse professional experiences into business. She set up Loreco Investments with partners and quickly established herself as a power player in South Africa's corporate world. Dr. Lulu is also a non-executive director at First Rand, MassMart, and Sun International. Dr. Lulu has built an extraordinary career. She's achieved many firsts academically and professionally as a Black woman in South Africa. I was inspired by her story, which is a testament to her grit and spirit. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Lulu Guagua. Dr. Lulu, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Victoria. I'm also delighted to be on the show. So I'd love to first talk about your background. You come from a village, Kromhoek, in KwaZulu-Natal. And I'd love to know, what was your childhood like? Victoria, I grew up in a rural area in Kromhoek, in the district of Umzimkulu, in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. I grew up in a very, very big family, extended family, where we were about 25 children. 
And the big thing about my family was education. So my father was a teacher and so was my elder uncle. And so it was all about everybody's got to be at school and you come back from school. It is all about the chores. So everybody had their chores that were quite clearly defined. And so quite a big, happy family where education was central to everything. Hmm. No, and it sounds like you probably learned a lot of discipline and a good work ethic in such a household. Absolutely. And also the village as well was part of the family. So you understood that if another mother and father down uh, in village, you went to fetch water and you were found to be playing instead of bringing water back home, you were going to be reprimanded there. And that was your mother, too. So this whole thing of that you are being brought up by a village and that every woman who's older than you is either your elder sister or your mother. And it's something that's still very much ingrained in me. So that discipline of uh, taking everybody as part of your village is something that's still very important to me. Hmm. Fascinating. And in high school, you won a scholarship to study geography at the University of Fort Hare. And you've said in interviews before that the transition from a rural school to a university such as the University of Fort Hare was pretty difficult. Can you elaborate on that? Actually, the scholarship that I won was from the University of Fort Hare to the University of Natal, where I went to do my master's. So going from the rural village to Fort Hare, that my family paid for that. But it was certainly quite a, a big change from a rural village to go to the University of Fort Hare. Firstly, just traveling. I mean, we traveled over two days when I think about it now, because we had to take a train to get to Forte and you get to this very big institution where all of a sudden you were in charge of yourself. So that was a big change for me, but a very, very good one for me, because as I said earlier on, the issue of education was always very important to my family. So I understood very clearly that we are going to be playing hard here, but we are also going to be studying very hard. Because I grew up in a family where when once we finished our chores, we were playing very hard outside. So that's something that I understood very clearly, that you can do both as long as you focused. Mm. Well, and I'm curious to know, because the University of Fort Hare was historically one of the most prestigious schools for black Africans in colonial South Africa, and many post-independence African leaders studied there, Julius Nyerere of Tanzania, Seretse Kama of Botswana, and kind of infamously uh, Robert Mugabe, but also lots of influential ANC politicians went to Fort Hare, like Oliver Tambo, and Nelson Mandela was famously kicked out in the 1940s. And I'd just love to know, what was the environment like for you at Fort Hare in the 1970s? Did you kind of feel like you were walking on hallowed ground that you know, giants had kind of, you know, studied at this university? Or was it a totally different environment after almost 30 years of apartheid? In some ways, I think for me, it was a reflection of where I came from, where I hadn't had that kind of exposure. So Forte for me was like holy ground in a sense. So I did get that feeling, although I didn't completely understand that, but just walking up and down the corridors of Forte had and that big sense of history. Certainly it did feel that way. And I think that still in the mid-70s when I was at Forte, I did my first year in 1976, Forte was still 
still fairly prestigious for black African educations. And it was also very political, not that it was the only one. I mean, all these universities were highly politicized. So that exposure, I think, to politics, you simply could not avoid it. It was very much in your face. But at the same time, I think, which is perhaps slightly different from what I see now, is that we politics was big, but education was also big. So in a sense, we kind of did both. Mm. So it was almost like student activism was just a part of your education. It was just part of your education. That's something that you did. I mean, there were strikes, you were dismissed from university, but you still came back and you wrote exams. So there was that kind of, I don't want to say balance, but that deep down understanding that for us as activists, We also needed to educate ourselves so that we can really, really lead from the front with a deep sense of knowledge about both the struggle itself, but also that you can engage theoretically as well around the struggle and a whole range of other things, that you can analyze things on the basis of proper methodology, if I can call it that. So education was important to us during those years. Hmm. Well, and you once remarked, and this really struck me, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that it's very difficult to succeed when you're not in a comfortable environment. And you've achieved a lot of firsts in life, despite being, it wasn't merely a not comfortable environment, it was a hostile environment. And, you know, you went on to graduate from University of Natal with a master's in town and regional planning, and later qualified as the first black town planner. And I just, I love to know... How did you cope with the difficulties of being a pioneer, of being this exceptional black woman who succeeded despite the odds, despite the hostility of being in such a difficult environment? Victoria, I think I go back to my family. I think I got a lot of strength from my family and also just in terms of how I grew up. We're in a village, as I said earlier on, you woke up in the morning as a girl, or at least I did, and my siblings as a girl, you first went to the river to fetch water before you went to school. And we didn't even feel that as hardship. It was just part the way of life. That's what you were going to do. You were going to wake up, you were going to go fetch river, and then you are going to run to school and make sure that you are at class on time at 8 o'clock. And at school, you also, there were no cleaners at school. You cleaned yourself at school. And then after school, you were running back home, playing in between, and you ate your lunch, and then off to the river again, or any other chores that you had to do. So I think that kind of discipline of saying this environment is kind of a given, although at the same time, you the whole idea is how do I change this environment that's here? That's my status quo now. I might not be accepting it, But for me to actually go beyond this, I have to improve myself. I can't sit and just complain and say I'm not going to do anything because my environment is bad. So I went to a school where there was, when I got to the University of Natal for my master's, just to give you an example, and I went to the library and there was a computer. I'd never seen that. At Forte, we didn't have that. But I wasn't gonna sit now and say well I've never seen how you use a a computer to check books in the library and therefore I'm failing and then now that's enough that was just not a given it was for me to be able to change my situation I have to do something about it I can't sit back and then complain and accept at the same time I mean so I think for me that's the key thing how do I understand my environment how do I change my environment how do I keep focus about where I want to be and where I want my family to be 
and where I want my community to be and how do I see as that agent of change as well yeah. and what discipline do I have to analyze that to stay focused and so I think yeah that's what I can say mm. I mean, yeah, I definitely get the sense that, you know, resilience and a hard work ethic, you know, that was instilled in you at a very young age, you know, from your family, from your upbringing and in your village. But I wonder, being in such a different environment, you know, like the University of Natal in the early 80s, and again, just going back to this idea that this was a really turbulent time in South Africa, I mean, like you said, everybody was involved in kind of student politics and activism. And I mean, you couldn't escape it. And so, I mean, I just wonder, like, how do you continue to succeed and to stay focused when there's so much almost, I don't want to say chaos, that's too strong of a word, but there's so much in your environment that you don't control. And not only that, but to me, it seems that it must have been pretty lonely, like, you know, being in your situation, you know, being kind of, again, the first black woman to have achieved, you know, being the first kind of town planner, studying, doing your master's, getting your scholarship at the University of Natal. I mean, you were achieving a lot of firsts. So also must have been kind of lonely. I think part of it, Victoria, is that actually it wasn't lonely in a sense, because if I think about University of Natal at the time when I was there, I arrived there in 1979. So every other black person there was a first of one form or another. So there were a number of people who were there, a handful of people were doing engineering, like Binky Moholi, who used to be the CEO of Telcom, was doing electrical engineering. Now, you hadn't seen women doing engineering. And so she was there with a handful of people who were doing architecture, like Vigeli Matutu was doing architecture at the time. It's probably one or two people were doing architecture. So in a sense, you did have these other activists and all of these people were activists and we're also staying in a residence of medical students because all of us were not allowed to stay at the residence with white students inverted commas so you were in this company other black achievers if you want to call it that and all of us were involved in one way or another in the student politics as i said because you couldn't avoid it but at the same time all of us were studying and we understood that we needed to have black town planners we needed to have black engineers we needed to have black doctors that in itself was part of a contribution wow yeah Difficult it was because, I mean, if I think about studying town planning at the time, in my class, I was the only female and the only black. And on Mondays, for example, I was doing, I think, can't remember whether it was first year or second year, Mondays and Wednesday we had an evening class for property law. And I can't remember what the other class was. But when I finished class, I had to literally run down to get to the bus stop by King Edward Hospital because that was the last bus that would be going to Osterville where we stayed as black students. So sometimes, I mean, I would see that the class is not ending and I'm going to miss the bus. So you would leave the class halfway and you're running because you're going to miss. So I'm not even romanticizing all of this. It was hard. It wasn't easy at all. But still, you kind of find your way through all of that. Hmm. And... I mean, besides, again, besides this kind of commitment to changing your environment, to succeeding despite the odds and being resilient, kind of what were other major takeaways from this period of your life? 
I think for me, one of the takeaways was that it is possible. I think that whole idea, because in a sense, as a black person, it was like, you can't do anything. There were just so many stumbling blocks to you achieving anything. But to say that despite odds, you actually can. I think that I can mentality, I think, is critical. Even today, I mean, we've got freedom, but it doesn't mean, at least in South Africa, it does political freedom that it doesn't mean everything is honky-dory. You still have to wake up and say, I can't do this. I'm in corporate South Africa now, which is not easy. And so you have to every day understand that you can and you have a responsibility to actually make it possible for yourself and for others. Hmm. Well, and on that subject, why does corporate life in South Africa, why does it remain so difficult for a black South African? Why has change been so slow? I don't know. (laughs) I wish I knew why it is so slow, but it is slow. And there's a lot of narrative which says we can't find black people. That is not the reason. I think it's commitment to change and it's commitment to make opportunities, to open opportunities for black people and also for the environment because the environment inside, even if you have that opportunity in terms of getting a job, but the environment itself, it's not very conducive. It's a very difficult environment for black people. So it's not just about adding the numbers. It's about working on the culture of the organization. And it's about changing the culture. It's about making it possible for black people to succeed. It is hard for a black South African to succeed in South Africa today. I have to just put it as blankly as all that. It's not easy. Yeah, and we're going to touch on that subject a little later. But You know, I want to get back to the 1980s and kind of when you were starting your career as a town planner and eventually you left for London to complete your higher education. And how did you feel going from the Eastern Cape in the 1980s, apartheid South Africa to London, a completely different world? That was heaven on earth for me. I think for the first time, I felt what it is to be myself because there were no constraints. And so I was kind of liberated inside and also in the program that I was involved in at, at London School of Economics. These were people from all over the world, from the US, from the UK, from the rest of Europe, from Asia, from other African countries. So this was just all of a sudden I was not a black woman. In that sense, that was my description. So it was about what is it that I can do and what I'm capable of. And that was very liberating for me. And I think because of that experience, London still remains the best city for me in the world today. I love the place. I could stay there literally anytime. Any excuse to go to London, I'm on the next flight. <laughs> That's just the how I felt being in London at the time. Well, and I just can't even imagine that, you know, it's like you've been in a box your whole kind of adult life and like particularly after university, which those years are so formative in your early 20s, you're figuring out who you are, what your values are, and to always be put in a box of like, you're a black woman, like that's all you are. And again, this is, you know, it's still kind of okay. It's like the last 15 years of apartheid, but no one knew that. I mean, this was kind of how... certainly in your lifetime of how things had always been done. And so you were always, it's like your wings were clipped. You could never really flourish and really be everything you could be. 
So I just can't even imagine, you know, finally, like you said, being unconstrained, you know, and just really being able to flourish, like must have been so amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of what I have become, I think, I mean, there are many influences in my life, I think, but that opportunity of being in London for three and a half years certainly changed me quite a lot. And when I came back, I certainly was a different person. I was a lot more articulate. I was a lot clearer about what is it that I want to do. And I felt a lot more courageous to stand out and engage, yeah, both academically and also just socially. So that opportunity to study in London for me was great. And as you would have seen in my CV, that the fact that I could go to London and do a master's at LSE and get a distinction and be the best student for that year and win the award said to me, well, girl, you can do this. No, wow, yeah, absolutely. And what's so interesting too about your story, and I'm going to get to this a little later in more depth. Yeah, you've always acknowledged that, you know, you had that the role that mentors have played in your career and your success has been so important. And, you know, and going to LSE, graduating with distinction, being, as you said, winning this prestigious award in your studies. And it was the first time it went to someone from a developing, quote unquote, country. Yeah, you know, you attribute that to that. There were a lot of people who saw your potential and they nurtured it. Yeah, in that particular environment, it was Caroline Moser, who was the uh, professor, and she really pushed me. And initially, I thought this is something against me. Why is she always pushing me for to do this extra paper and to do this? And my essay was not good enough. I need to relook at it and all of that. I thought, of course, she's got something against me. But actually, I realized much later that actually she had seen something in me that I did not know coming from South Africa where nobody, at least in term, within that context, is a black person and in particular as an African woman you were always at the bottom of the pile and you almost got to a point of believing that actually you were never good enough and all of a sudden I think she just unveiled that for me and just took away that veil and all of a sudden I was standing on my own as a person like any other person next to me in class and that really liberated me and and since then I've really really spend a lot of my time, which I still do now, mentoring and supporting. And I've decided to focus on women because of my own story has led me to know for sure that having those people who believe in you, who make it possible for you, who push you, is what ultimately will push you to be the best of who you are. Hmm. Yeah, because believing kind of these really self-destructive narratives about yourself of like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not meant for this. I'm not cut out for this. People like me don't do, you know, this type of career. You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you're right that you need someone, you need that external support and that belief to be like, hey, you can do this. It's just, you know, you need to push yourself harder. Yeah, absolutely. And when you returned to South Africa in 1995, following the collapse of apartheid, the election of Nelson Mandela, you were appointed as the deputy director general of the public works department. And you are incredibly passionate about fighting for spatial equity. And can you expand on that idea? Yeah, I think my passion for spatial equity comes out of being born in a rural area with no access 
with no infrastructure, and then studying town planning and expanding that beyond just designing into development policy, which is what I did at LSE, and then start to appreciate what spatial inequality actually does. I mean, I always put it uh, this way, that if you are born, you are a young black African girl born in Krumhook, and there's another same African a girl born in Sentin in South Africa. Your life chances are not the same. You are not starting from the same line. The person who's starting from Sentin is starting on a completely different line, purely by being born in Sentin. All of a sudden, they've got access to better education, better schools, better clinics, better everything. They've got exposure. They know that it's possible. There's something called the Reserve Bank down the road. They know that there's something called Orocon, which is a consulting engineering company. Just in terms of what careers are out there, you are seeing all of that every day. But if you are born in my village out there, you don't know that. You think the only careers in life are being a teacher, being a nurse, and being a priest, because those are the three people that you see in your life every day, and a policeman, maybe. Mm. So that's what you see. And so in terms of access to infrastructure, the school that you go to is, I mean, and the teachers that are going to be teaching there. So everything about your environment and what's available to you immediately is different purely on this basis of where you are born. So that's why this issue of spatial equality for me is such a big issue. Oh, wow. And I couldn't agree with you more. You know, in the U.S., for instance, there's this whole myth of like the bootstrapping myth that, oh, it's all a meritocracy and it's all based on on merit and working hard. But, you know, scientific studies have shown that no, kind of your trajectory in life is very much correlated with your zip code, like where you're born. Exactly. Because that determines, yeah, the resources you have access to. And two, just like going back to this kind of recurring theme in our conversation, it's kind of seeing what's out there and knowing what's possible. So you're right. If you're born in a village, you don't know that you can go on to become an engineer necessarily, or it's just something you maybe you wouldn't even consider. Exactly, because you don't know. I mean, you don't see an engineer next door. You simply don't see these things and you don't know. So exposure is just something that is just so crucial for me. And so I've become a big one around spatial equality for that reason. Mm. And kind of concretely, what needs to change in order to improve, as you put it, spatial equity, spatial equality? I think infrastructure, I mean, it's not like we're going to now move everybody to Sentin. That's not the point. The point is about how do we improve, if anything, how do we improve infrastructure and how do we improve economic opportunities so that people have got access to infrastructure, they've got access to economic opportunities where they are. Because if the thing about infrastructure is that it increases mobility, because part of the reason why in rural areas like where I was, the nature of the road, which then was half non-existent, is that there was only one bus that went in the morning, in the afternoon. So even if you wanted to go somewhere, you simply, it was not possible for you, or it was difficult to get somewhere. So infrastructure is just about the increasing mobility. For example, if there's electricity, there's water, 
and there's all of that in rural areas. Electricity means that you've got access to TV, which means that you can see what is possible just by watching TV. And all of a sudden, if there is electricity and there's Wi-Fi, you can now get online and then you can charge your cell phone and all of a sudden you can also access other things via the network. So it's not necessarily about moving people. It's about improving the lives of people where they are and therefore making it possible and giving them those choices about where they want to be in life. Because without that, people simply don't have have the choice Mm. uh, to be wherever. I mean, my own daughter, because of where she's born, all of a sudden she's able to sit there and say, okay, I can choose to go and study at Rhodes. Oh, okay, I can choose to go somewhere in order to see and order to improve my chances. But for somebody in rural areas, just that choice is not there. Right. Absolutely. And when you were working in government, what were the major lessons learned? I think one of the big lessons for me in working in government was the just the level of responsibility that is a public servant you have. As a DDG, the kinds of decisions that you make on a daily basis without all the time, because if you are sitting in that position, you don't have the time to each time think about Oh, okay, if I make this decision, these are the implications. So, but by sitting there and knowing that the decision that I make and signature that I put on paper has the possibility of changing lives of millions of people is mind-boggling. And that was the main thing that came out for me, was just the privilege of being a public servant and the level of responsibility that you have. And therefore, the responsibility to really think hard about how you behave and what drives you when you are sitting on that chair as a public servant. And I think that's the issue about it. It's not necessarily by being a DDG, which means the second in charge in a department, even as a clerk, but when you are sitting there as a public servant, the level of responsibility is just huge. And I'm not sure that all people who take jobs in the public sector, they think about it that way. Hmm. Well, and step us through your decision-making process. I mean, how do you not get analysis paralysis? (laughs) Like, how do you learn to make a decision And like you said, and not be overburdened or just by the potential consequences. I think part of it also when you sit in those positions, it's about your own values. Because a lot of it, even if we talk about analysis, there's an analysis which is objective. But in any decision, there's subjectivity that comes in. Because in the final instance, there's judgment. You're going to apply judgment uh, to any piece of paper and any report that's put on your table at a senior level, as a manager, as a leader. You're going to take all of this information into account, but ultimately you're going to bring yourself in and take that decision. And your junior people will give you options and you're going to apply judgment. And that judgment, I think for me, is based on your own values and what you understand to be right or wrong and what you understand your responsibility to be and why you're there. If you are there to impact on people's lives, then that's something that's going to be subconsciously sitting there all the time to say without even concretely or overtly thinking about it all the time, it becomes just part of your part of who you are and it forms the basis of your judgment. Mm. Yeah, it's like your guiding star. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of like a moral compass. Well, and I want to now talk about your career as a businesswoman, which has been 
you know, very impressive. You're the CEO of Loreco Investment, which is a Black-owned investment company. And tell us the backstory of how you got involved with Loreco. How did it all come about? I had served 10 years in the public sector um, as a DDG, as you said, which is the Deputy Director General in the National Department of Public Works. I had served as the CEO of the Independent Development Trust, which is uh, one of the implementing agents of government. So it's a public entity. And at the end of that 10 years, I was simply exhausted. And I think everyone who was in government, who started in government at the time that I did, which was 94, and you spent that first 10 years, the learning curve was just so steep, you were almost falling over. And the level of commitment and passion you brought your all into your position. And we all took ourselves very seriously at the time. And so by the end of 10 years, I was like, that's it. I'm exhausted. And I had young children on top of that. And somewhere in between all of that, I managed to complete my PhD as well. So I was completely done and I needed a break. So I left the IDT at the end of my term. I opted not to take a second term and I took a year out, a sabbatical, almost like I need a break. And during that year, the only thing I did was to be a policy advisor for Kellogg Foundation in Southern Africa, which was not a full-time thing. It was just a policy advisor, which I enjoyed a lot. And as I was mulling over what to do next, and I was more inclined to go back to academia, I met Vali Musa and Popo Mulefe, we had just, and Eric Malobe, we had just started Lyreco Investment. And they convinced me to join the team and the rest is history. Yeah, that's how I got into Lyreco Investment. Mm. Well, and I mean, I can only imagine, you know, it's like being a part of kind of the first post-apartheid government and to like being in town planning and thinking about, okay, how do we equitably kind of create institutions? How do we create institutions that are fair and just and serve the whole population? Like just being in government in that time, I can only imagine how exhausting it was. And even the fact that you managed, I mean, that you managed a decade and you're raising a family and you completed a PhD, how did you not burn out (laughs) earlier? Like, again, I mean, just to to have that kind of willpower to do so much, I mean, how did you do it? Part of it is about who is around you. Um, I have a very close-knit family um, of sisters and my extended family and also my husband and friends. So, I mean, I go back to this thing of that first 10 years, everybody around me, I wasn't special. Everybody around me, my friends, my siblings, everybody was having their shoulder in the world because we had a job to do. So there wasn't anything special about me. A whole range of other people were doing the same. So you kind of uh, supported each other in the process. So yeah, that's how I think you kind of carry yourselves. But stressful, yes. Exhausting, yes. Certainly it was all there, but we were all in it together. Mm, Yeah, again, so that sense of community was so important to just 
dealing with the stress and feeling like you were on a greater mission, that you were on a mission that was greater than yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, given your background in town planning, being in government for 10 years, you also did research on behalf of the World Bank in the early 2000s. You know, you're not a businesswoman kind of by background. So when you got involved with Loreco, did you have any self-doubts about going into business? I certainly did because I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur. I considered myself a development activist and a development planner. But I soon discovered that actually business is the same thing, depending on how you view it. It's another side of struggle. It's another side from which you make a contribution in this country. And I think the team in Lireko, all of us come from struggle background. Evali Musa was and Popo Mulefe were very central to the part of the founding team of UDF, Democratic Front, and were in the NEC of the ANC, where Vali was a minister, Popo was a premier, same with Eric Malobe. So everybody in Lireko comes from that background. So we kind of, from day one, understood and agreed that we will continue to make a contribution in this country, both in our individual capacities, but also in the work that we do in Lureco. So if you look at all of us, all of us serve and continue to serve in the public sector in one form or another. At some point, Vali was the CEO of ESCOM. Uh, Popo, as we speak, is the, I'm not CEO, chairman. As we speak, uh, Popo is the chairman of Transnet. I spent three years whilst at Lureco being the deputy chair of the Eastern Cape Planning Commission. So we've continued to play that role. And I think for me, that has been the most fulfilling bit in Lireco is that we've given ourselves the space and the flexibility to do the things that impact society. Hmm. Because as well, I mean, there is a political mission in a way, and well, no, I mean, very overtly to Loreco or other companies like, I mean, in the 1990s, there was kind of the development, the growth of black economic empowerment companies to, again, try to work towards fair redistribution of resources, you know, to try to, over time, right the wrongs of apartheid. And, you know, even as a businesswoman, as an entrepreneur, I mean, you've always been an activist. I mean, that's been kind of one theme of your whole career that's kind of always been consistent. Absolutely. Because as you correctly say, BE and is about transforming the economy and the economic ownership and the economic structure of this country. So if you are in that space, you are making that contribution of changing, of transforming South Africa. And if you are sitting on these big corporate boards, you're sitting there, you shouting every day all the time, as we said earlier on, how do we change the structure and how do we change the culture of these companies? So as Lireco, we decided uh, quite strategically that we would invest in those companies that uh, play quite an important role in the economy and do our little bit in those companies to see how those companies transform. It hasn't been easy, but it's something that we're doing every day. For example, we are invested in a company called South Point, which is about student accommodation nationally. That's something that's very, very important to say, how do we improve living conditions for students in higher education? So, and in other companies that we are involved in as well. So in business, and as I say, I've come to 
understand that making a contribution in South Africa is not just about being in the public sector only. It is about everywhere we are, whether you are in business or you are in the NGO sector or broadly in civil society or in the union sector, there's a contribution to be made wherever you are. And I think once an activist, you are likely to remain an activist. Mm. Is that a generational thing? Do you see young South Africans as committed to change and societal change and activism as you are and people of your generation are? I think they are. I think that if you are, because let's come back and say, why were we involved in struggle? It is because of the conditions that you lived under every day, all the time. So if you come to South Africa today, if you still live in rural areas, there are conditions there that you know that your conditions should not be like this. If you work in corporate South Africa, yes, you are a chartered accountant and you are working in a big bank or in any of the companies and you see that maybe your promotion chances are not the same, you are going to fill it. So it's the environment that actually drives you to be an activist. So I think that if you look at FISMA's fall, FISMA's fall started in the historically white universities. It didn't start at Forte or University of the North or Limpopo. It started at VETS at Rhodes, at UCT. Those are privileged students were, to a large extent, at the forefront of that. Why was that? It is because they were sitting here looking at how the conditions are. So I think young people are also involved in struggle and committed from a different angle. And I think as older people like myself, sometimes we are too quick to judge them in terms of how they struggle because we struggled in a particular way, but they are struggling and they are involved in struggle in a different way than we were at the time because the conditions are different. Fact of the matter is that we do, there has been political change. So that is real and that has impacted positively. But so they aren't fighting for vote, which is what we were fighting for. They're fighting for different things. Mm, Well, you, you cited such a great example. Well, and what has been your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? That's a very interesting one because we had hundreds of failures. <laughs> right. Um, I think one of the biggest failures, as I would say, has been not being courageous enough to exit people under me working in my team early enough. And as a result, find that a team has, those people have become a drag to the passion and to the energy of the team. So I tend to take too long, when I know, I mean, I think like most women, intuition, I see that this appointment is not the best and it's not working, but try and find different ways of making it work when actually I know deep down it's not going to work. And I think that I would say that has been the biggest failure for me and something that I still struggle with even today that I need to work on to be able to courage us, if that's the right word, to take that decision and saying it's got nothing to do with me, that I have not been able to support the person, nor is it something wrong with the person. It's about they are not the right person for this particular position right now. Mm. And do you think that's a gendered issue in a way? Because I feel that a lot of women 
you know, we're brought up to be nice and to be gentle and to be kind and all of these good qualities. But there's things that, you know, as a leader, you know, you can't be nice. You need to do what's best for the organization. And like you said, if someone isn't working out in a position, then they need to go. And it's not anything personal, but maybe a part of the resistance is the fact that very often as women, we're brought up in a culture that doesn't exactly, you know, that only rewards us for being nice, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I agree with you that it is a gender thing, but I think at the center of it, for me, it's about taking the person out of it and just saying, as I said earlier on, I'm not by releasing this person, I'm not making a judgment on the competence of the person per se. I am saying they are not the right person for this job. Maybe their competency and their energy would be better placed elsewhere. Because we spend a lot of time trying to say, oh, maybe if I had done this, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that. And so make it my problem and make it that other person's problem, as opposed to say there's something to be done here. And which is very different from saying this person is in this team. They're not ready, but there's something I can do to support them and to improve them so that they can be a better fit here. Some people, and there's a very big difference between that and say the person actually is misplaced here. And I think as women, we confuse the two. And as a result, we get ourselves into this whirlpool, you know, of really stressing about this. And in the process, you actually disadvantage the team, the overall performance of the team. Mm, That's a great way to frame it. I really like that. And what are the last couple books that have left an impression on you? Victoria, recent last three years or so, I've decided to only read books by African women writers. African here, not necessarily as in race. African, including diaspora, meaning women from this continent. And the reason why I've done that, it's part of my broader mission to support women wherever they are. Because I think as a woman, if you pen something and you put it out there, I mean, it's such a big risk. And therefore, I think it is important that we support women who take that risk of writing and putting their ideas out there. So that's what I do. I spend a lot of time reading African women writers. And I also review these books, not do academic review. It's more of a literary review, just a summary of the book. And I put these reviews on my website, which is www.luluguagua.co.za. Some of the books that I've read from women, which have really left an impact on me. One is So Long a Letter. It's an old book. It's a classic by Mariana Barr. And why I resonated the book is it was written, I don't know, maybe in the 50s. I don't know when, but it's an old book. But I've just been struck by how so many 30 years or more later, I could resonate with the book as a an African woman, professional woman, that the struggles of women actually haven't changed much. They were struggling at the time with their religion, with culture, and in their relationships. And we're still there. We haven't really gotten ourselves or society and ourselves haven't gotten ourselves out of it. So that book, I think, is a classic and it's a very critical book that I would really advise. It's in a form of a letter. It's a, She's writing letters to her friend, and so they're engaging with her friend. So I found that book really, really impacted on me a lot. So that's So Long a Letter by Mariama Barr. 
The second book that I read very recently is Daunting Years. It's written by, I don't know how to pronounce, but it's Pana Gay Gay. So it's K-P-A-N-A, that's the first name, and G-A-Y Gay Gay. This is a young woman that I actually met earlier in the year. I was in Accra and attended a book reading evening. And this young woman was there. This is a book, a memoir that she wrote about her experience as a child growing up in a country under civil war. And basically the thing about the book was how in most instances we do not explain things to children. And we assume that they are children, therefore they don't understand what's going on. She talks about her confusion and her fears, her anxiety, because she didn't quite know exactly what was going on, but she could see that there's a lot of bad things that were going on. So the opening part of the book is her talking, her mother saying, take a few things, put in a bag, let's go. And But her mother doesn't say there's a war going on. And therefore, we need to run away because we are in danger. And when she tries to say to her mother why, she says, don't ask me questions. Let's go. So I could just see myself there as a mother, how in most instances I I will say the same and don't want to explain things to children. So that was the second book that really impacted me. A third one is On Black Sister Street by Chika C-H-I-K-A. And this is about a prostitution. This again impacted on me because there are these four women who find themselves in Belgium. They are from Nigeria, I think, or most of them are of Nigeria. And part of why that book impacted on me was firstly that how quick it is to judge women who are prostitutes without actually knowing their story and on how they got there. And after reading that book, it changed my whole view about women uh, prostitutes because all of those women had been there because of conditions in their own country, about the failed uh, state, and also all of them, none of them went to Belgium to be prostitutes. They were promised that they will be going there, there were jobs there, and that's where they were going. They were going to make for a better life for themselves, only to find that they were being trapped. But when you see them and I meet them in the red district in Belgium, I'm judging them, but I actually don't know their stories. Mm. So those three books for different reasons actually stuck on me. Mm. And we'll include um, all of those links in the show notes. And Dr. Lulu, if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? Two things I would say. One would be look for partners and look for partners that would complement your skills. But that would also complement your temperament because business ultimately is about that team. I mean, you are found that in Lureco as partners, we're quite different. But because of that difference, both in terms of temperament and skills, we are able to complement each other very well. But in the process, make sure that you've got partners that have got integrity. Because ultimately, sustainability of your business is about integrity. This thing of trying to make a quick buck is just simply not sustainable. People are going to find out that you're building a business without integrity means you are building that business on straw. It's going to collapse at some point, not very long from now. It's going to collapse. Look at Steinhoff in South Africa. It's oh, collapsed yeah. Yeah. precisely because of that. So for me, that's a crucial 
first point. The second point is find a mentor. I can't stress this enough. I'm where I am because of mentors. So surround yourself with mentors. People that believe in you will find joy in seeing you succeed. So those would be the two things that I would emphasize to a young entrepreneur out there. Oh, that's wonderful advice. And Dr. Lulu, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Victoria. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcasts. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.